Welcome back to the OBG Med Student Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tanya Wright, and we are back again to discuss an APCO educational topic. The topic for today is topic number 47, which covers menopause. We have a menopause expert in the house today. This is Dr. Alana Petrogallo. Dr. Petrogallo, welcome. Thank you for being with us. The way that we will typically do this is we'll read through a case and then I will ask you some questions. Shall we get started? Great. I'm so excited to be here to talk about menopause today. Awesome. Our case is a 53-year-old G3P3 whose LMP, our last menstrual period, was four months ago. And she's coming to your office with a complaint of hot flushes, emotional lability, and insomnia. She experiences hot flushes two to three times per day and occasionally at night. She has been having trouble sleeping and is extremely fatigued. Since the age of 14, her periods have been regular until two years ago, when they became more spaced out, occurring every two to three months. She is sexually active and recently noted some dyspareunia. The patient rarely exercises. She does smoke two packs of cigarettes per day and drinks alcohol socially. She recently started taking a soy supplement. She does not have pertinent GYN, medical or surgical history. Her family history is significant for her mother sustaining a hip fracture at age 60 and a sister with breast cancer and high cholesterol. On exam, her vital signs are normal. She is 5 foot 4 inches tall. She weighs 123 pounds and on pelvic exam, she has decreased vaginal rugae and a pale small cervix. There are no masses or tenderness palpated on your bimanual exam. The first question is, just kind of looking back at our case, um, Dr. Pichagallo, what are some of the symptoms of perimenopause and menopause? So this woman is experiencing a number of symptoms that we see both in perimenopause and in menopause. Namely, these are the hot flashes that she's having both during the daytime and at nighttime, difficulty with sleeping, and certainly emotional lability is a hallmark of menopause and perimenopause. So menopause is the time that is the the cessation of menses for 12 months. So all that happens prior to that 12-month period of amenorrhea is perimenopause. Otherwise, menopause and perimenopause symptomatically share a lot of features. People often ask, when does menopause occur? When can I expect to start to have these symptoms? When can I expect to stop having periods? And the average age of menopause is 50 to 52. Um, Generally, we say it's 51 and a half, but I tell women 50 to 52 years of age. Most women will stop by 55, and we can see it as early as 50, or even women in their 40s can go through menopause. Mm -hmm. Um, For most women, perimenopausal symptoms will start about three to five years prior to that last menstrual period. Um, But some women, for some women, the symptoms start well before this, and people always ask, how long can I expect my symptoms to last after I've hit that 12-month mark um, to mark menopause? And that's a really variable time. For some women, they will have a few months of symptoms or no symptoms, and other women can have symptoms for five years, 10 years, or occasionally even for longer than that. But why does this happen on the hormonal level? So the, the true basis of menopause and perimenopause and their symptoms lies in the hypoestrogenic state of menopause and of perimenopause. So what we see happening um, from um, the level of the anatomy and um, from an endocrine standpoint in 
perimenopause is that the aging follicles of a woman's ovary um, have a decreased ability to secrete inhibin. And if you remember, inhibin acts as a negative feedback to the um, pituitary to decrease release of FSH when there is sufficient estrogen. When the ovaries are not able to make as much of this negative feedback hormone inhibin, we see an increase in the FSH, which leads to an increase in stimulation and response of ovarian follicles, which helps to maintain estrogen levels in the perimenopause period. Once a woman actually goes into menopause, and again, menopause is that 12-month mark where they have had 12 months without any menses, uh, the, uh, the follicles will then go an accelerated um, depletion of these follicles. So there is no inhibin, but the ovaries aren't even able to respond to the increased levels of FSH, and you have a decreased um, secretion of the ovarian steroid hormones, including estrogen and progesterone. Um, so this leads to an increase in FSH and LH in patients, and the hypoestrogenic environment of the body then is responsible for a lot of the hallmark symptoms of menopause and perimenopause. Dr. Petrigala, patients will oftentimes complain about hot flashes or vasomotor symptoms. What, what exactly is that? You're absolutely right. Vasomotor symptoms or hot flashes are the most common symptom that women um, complain of in menopause. And we can see them in up to 80% of women in perimenopause and menopause. The hot flash lasts about one to five minutes and women describe it as a sudden wave of heat that spreads over the body, particularly in the face and the upper body. And these symptoms um, can be associated with sweating, anxiety, palpitations, um, sleep disturbances, and really can be quite disruptive um, to, to patients. The cause of vasomotor symptoms also stems from the hypoestrogenic state of perimenopause and menopause. So what we see is with decreased levels of estrogen, we have increased levels of norepinephrine and serotonin. Norepinephrine and serotonin act upon the nucleus of the hypothalamus, which regulates perspiration and vasodilation um, and activates heat dissipation and mechanisms to maintain core body temperatures in the regulated range, which we call the thermoregulatory zone. So basically, decreased estrogen makes the thermoregulatory zone a more narrow zone so that women will respond to smaller changes in core body temperature and this induces a hot flash. So we know that women that are in the perimenopausal, menopausal age group are at risk for osteoporosis or bone loss. What are some of this patient's risk factors specifically? Yeah, that's a great question. This woman has a number of risk factors for osteoporosis. First of all, she's a smoker, and smokers certainly do have an increased risk of osteoporosis. Um, she also is slim. She weighs 123 pounds, and we know that women that lay, weigh less than 127 pounds or have a BMI of less than 21 are at an increased risk for osteoporosis. Additionally, women who have a family history of osteoporosis are at an increased risk, um, and women who are on certain medications have an increased risk of osteoporosis, specifically corticosteroid use. Other risk factors for osteoporosis are um, alcohol use, 
um, high caffeine use, Asian and white origin, vitamin D deficiency, poor calcium intake, and sedentary lifestyles. Okay, so that covers osteoporosis. What about atrophic vaginitis? Something else that we can diagnose in patients in this um, age group. How would you diagnose this and how would you even treat it? Sure, so in this patient, um, we can tell that she has atrophic vaginitis and that she has decreased vaginal rugae and a pale small cervix. So atrophic vaginitis are the changes that we see in the vagina also due to the hypoestrogenic state of menopause. So what we see is that um, patients will present with dryness, sometimes itching, dyspareunia, um, and these are due to, again, the effects that this decreased estrogen level has. So what this does is that the estrogen rather the lack of estrogen results in a thinning of the vaginal epithelium. We also see a loss of the rugae and loss of vaginal collagen, loss of adipose tissue, and we see that the pH of the um, vagina actually increases and becomes more alkaline in the menopause state. Um, on the vulva, we see that there's a decrease in glands, so decrease in lubrication. There's a decrease in the subcutaneous fat, which causes a shrinkage of some of the external genitalia and often can result in a um, narrowing of the introitus. We also see um, shrinking and retraction of the clitoral hood and urethra in menopausal patients. If you look at a wet prep of a woman um, in menopause, you'll see some changes also. So you'll see that the vaginal epithelial cells are replaced by basal cells, um, and this is a sign that that top healthy layer of the vagina is no longer present in the menopausal patients. Um, so treatment for atrophic vaginitis um, includes topical lubricants. Um, those can be either a personal lubricant or a um, vaginal moisturizer. And then we also treat patients with topical estrogen. Topical estrogen is generally the most effective treatment for atrophic vaginitis and takes generally about four to six weeks for symptomatic relief for patients. The treatment with topical estrogen um, can increase the thickness of the vaginal epithelium, it can restore some of the rugae, and certainly it restores some lubrication to the vagina, which helps with some of the symptoms of irritation and dyspareunia that women experience with atrophic vaginitis. Are there any laboratory or diagnostic tests that you would order for this patient? Absolutely. In this patient, you'd want to focus your tests on her history and symptoms and preventative screening, which I think you covered in your Well Woman podcast. Absolutely. So for this woman, because she has fatigue and um, because of her family history, I think it would be important to get a TSH and a lipid panel. Um, certainly, menopausal women and women at the age of perimenopause should continue general health maintenance and screening guidelines, again, which I believe you covered in your pod and your Well Woman podcast. These would include a mammogram, um, bone density, or DEXA scanning. And in this patient, since she has um, increased risk factors, we would do it a little bit earlier. So for most women, we start DEXA scans at age 65, but women who have increased risk factors, we will start earlier. Um, she would also be due for a colonoscopy due to those general screening test guidelines. Um, Women who are perimenopausal and menopausal should continue to have cytologic screening, and those are also reviewed in the Well Woman podcast. Excellent. So, Dr. Petragallo, that brings us to treatment options for this patient. Does she have options for treatment, and how do you typically counsel patients with regards to their treatment options? 
the real goal of treatment of menopause symptoms is to relieve the symptoms. So particularly patients come in saying that they would like relief of vasomotor symptoms. These can really be disruptive to their daily life and activities. The idea is that we use um, the most of the effective dose for the shortest amount of time as possible. So for most healthy symptomatic women in their 50s, the overall risk of complications from hormonal therapy and hormone therapy is quite low. When we talk about risks, um, we talk about risk of stroke and venous embolism specifically for estrogen. And then when we talk about women who are treated with both estrogen and progestin, we have an increased risk of breast cancer, stroke, coronary heart uh, events, and venous thromboembolism. So how do we decide who gets just estrogen and who gets estrogen plus progestin? So for women who do not have a uterus, they can just be treated with estrogen. For women who still have a uterus, they need estrogen and progestin. The progestin therapy is added to prevent endometrial hyperplasia and endometrial carcinoma. So that really handles the hormone therapy portion for vasomotor symptoms. When we talk about vaginal atrophy, as I mentioned before, we talk about some of the topical treatments like a personal lubricant or vaginal moisturizer, and then also the topical vaginal estrogen, which is quite low and has very minimal systemic absorption um, and can improve both vaginal and um, urogenital symptoms. Alternative therapies um, for for vasomotor symptoms would include some other classes of medication. So we can use SSRIs and SNRIs to treat vasomotor symptoms. We use clonidine and gabapentin as as alternatives for women who either have contraindications or don't wish to be on hormone therapy. There are also some herbal medications that can be used, but they really don't have great evidence to back up their efficacy. But often you'll have patients ask about black cohosh or phytoestrogens, as we saw in this patient who is consuming soy in her diet. Um, In discussing management options with patients, it's really important to, of course, discuss contraindications. And there are some contraindications for hormone therapy. So women who have a history of any venous thromboembolic event um, are not candidates for hormone therapy. Women who have a estrogen or progesterone-sensitive cancer are also not candidates for hormone therapy. And women with um, significant cardiovascular disease are also um, also have contraindications to hormone therapy. Um, given the increased risk of venous thromboembolism with both estrogen and progestin use, one of the ways that we think we can decrease that risk while giving women symptomatic relief is by prescribing transdermal estrogen um, because we believe that this Um, decreases the risk of venous thromboembolism, and it can also have a beneficial effect on lipids for women. Um, One of the things that's really important for us to talk to our patients about who are menopausal, who are on therapy, and women who are not on therapy is the importance of evaluating postmenopausal bleeding. So certainly anytime a woman who has um, hit menopause has any amount or type of um, vaginal bleeding, it's really important to uh, to initiate a complete workup of that. Um, And certainly, as with so many other um, areas, it's really important to talk about lifestyle modifications. So tobacco use can certainly be contributing to this patient's particular symptom, so we would like to stress the um, cessation of smoking and help patients um, to have a successful 
smoking cessation plan. Um, exercise can be helpful to women in menopause. One of the things that's really simple that women can do for vasomotor symptoms is dress in layers, and this is one of the things that we see patients do really commonly. There are also dietary triggers for hot flashes. So often alcohol, caffeine, spicy foods, chocolate, and um, other foods like this can be triggers for hot flashes. So if women can sometimes avoid some of these triggers, they can decrease their hot flashes on their own. We also see this with hot drinks. So women who like to drink a lot of tea or coffee, regardless of whether it's caffeinated, um, may see an increase in hot flashes. So decreasing those warm beverages can also help some symptom control for them. Dr. Petragallic, thank you so much for this awesome review on menopause. We really appreciated having you here. If you guys also wanted to read more about this, you can do so on the Beckman and Ling textbook, chapter 41. Um, and as I mentioned before, this is also educational topic number 47 on apco.org backslash students. Dr. P, thank you. Thanks. I loved being here. Awesome.